When you think about sacrifices made for the freedoms that we have in this country, it's really significant. Uh, you, you, you experience and you see the challenges of so many, in so many countries where they don't have the freedom that we have. They don't have the opportunities that we have. And they don't have the, uh, they don't have the liberty to, to worship and to express freely their faith. And even though occasionally when you do, you get, you get maybe heckled or challenged or rebuked maybe by those that you work with or whoever, but for the most part, uh, what we experience here in terms of rebuttal of faith is nothing compared to what so many others face around the world. And we are just really grateful for that. I guess it's in light of that that I really wanted to take some time and, and just remember a few other people as it relates to the church. As it relates to the church. Uh, there's a portion in the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, where the writer of Hebrews talks about those who were cut in half and those who gave their lives and those who were, who were martyred and killed because of their faith. And then you read also in Revelation 6, 9 to 11, that's in your notes. It says, When the Lamb broke open the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained out of loyalty to Christ. They cried in a loud voice saying, O Lord, holy and true, how long now before you will sit in judgment and avenge our blood on those unregenerate ones who dwell on the earth. And then they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest and wait quietly for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed. So even there you see before the coming of Christ, the fifth seal is broken and you, you, you see, as he opens up underneath the altar, all of those who gave their lives, who were sacrificed because of their relationship to the true God and to the Word of God. We also have, we also have Hebrews 13.3, which kind of admonishes us. It says, Remember the Lord's people who are in jail and be concerned for them. And don't forget those who are suffering, but imagine that you are there with them. And so this morning, what I would like to do is take just a few minutes and talk to you about three individuals that you and I need to remember. But before we do that, let me, let me just share with you an astounding truth. An astounding truth. It, wasn't, it really wasn't very many years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ that the church found itself once again back into a system that was dominated by human ideology, religiosity. It was, it was really a sad state of affairs. Shortly after, I'm talking about not thousands of years, but just hundreds of years. Hundreds years of years after Jesus rose from the dead and the church began to explode and and cross the entire world and transform the lives of so many people, you found three very key things that were part of the church. 
the church. 1200s, 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, 900s, and so on. Listen, hypocrisy and moral debauchery among the professional clergy. From the purity of the church and for the holiness of the bride of Christ, you found the behavior of the clergyman to be horrific. In fact, one writes and says, there are priests now in vast numbers, enormous herds of them, seculars and regulars. And it is notorious that very few of them are chaste. The great proportion fall into lust and incest and open profligacy. Hypocrisy and moral debauchery. The second thing that was true of the church at that time was biblical illiteracy among the people. The Bible was written in the language of the Greek, the language that really was was spread throughout the entire land. And then you find this uh, incredible transformation that took place and the language that was being used was archaic. It was no longer something that was fresh and understandable. It was the Latin language and people did not know it and so there was illiteracy. Common people had little access to the Bible. I mean, they couldn't read it. They couldn't understand it. They didn't even have a copy of it. It was so rare. The teachers who could decipher the Latin version, they watered down the scriptures with their lack of understanding and their clear, clear ineptitude. Listen to this statement about the people who were leading the church. Theology itself I have reverence and always have reverenced. I am speaking merely of the, theolo- of the theo- <laughs> theolograstics of our time. This is old English here, people. <laughs> He says, whose whose brains are the rottenest, intellectuals the dullest, doctrines the thorniest, manners the brutalest, life the foulest, speech the spitefulest, hearts the blackest that I have ever encountered in the world. Talking about the leaders of the church. Leaders of the church. So there was hypocrisy, moral debauchery, their biblical illiteracy among the people. And the third thing that was was true of the church, if you can even imagine this, was unabashed materialism. Unabashed materialism. Basically known in the Bible as greed. (laughs) Listen to this statement. I see that we can scarcely get anything from Christ's ministers except for money. At baptism, money. At bishoping, money. At marriage, money. For confession, money. Counseling, money. Prayers for the dead, money. No, not extreme unction without money. They ring no bells without money. No burial in the church without money. 
so that it seemeth that paradise is shut up from them that have no money. No money. That was the time in which God brought along a couple of people, three in particular, who really transformed Christendom. We call it the Reformation. We see that there are two major camps when it comes to Christianity. There is the Orthodox and then there are the Protestants. How many of you know what a Protestant is? Many of you are thinking, oh, I know what a Protestant is. A Protestant believes this and that and so on. But just the term itself, a Protestant was a protester. They were protesters. Protesters of the church. Protesters of the way that the leaders were handling the word of God. Protesters about what they were teaching. Protesters about the way they were selling goods and they were marketing Christianity and they were taking everything they could from everyone they could in order to line their own pockets and make themselves wealthy. They were protesting. Protesting. So the next time you you go to the hospital, God forbid for any serious reason, they say, what are you? What is your particular persuasion? And one of the options is Protestant. You can just say, I'm a protester, man. (laughs) I'm protesting. Protesting. Well, what is it? What is it that marks these people that we want to talk about? And first, let's look at who they are and and what really bothered them. Now, there were a lot of things that a lot of things that they that they wrote about, a lot of things that they were concerned about. But let's just look at the primary focus of these three individuals. The first one you want to notice is John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was very disturbed that people did not have the ability to read or understand or study the scriptures. Religion was polluted. Religion was politics and greed. John Wycliffe came along and his, his conclusion was that God's word was never intended to be unavailable to people. His, his driving force in his life was everybody ought to be able to pick up the Bible and read the Bible. Everybody. And there were other things too that, that he protested because as he saw it, the church was teaching things that were not true. For example, with communion, he was vehemently against the Eucharist as they described it and taught it. They believed, and many even today still believe, that when you take the bread and you eat the bread, the bread becomes the body of Christ. And when you drink the cup, it becomes the blood. So you are literally partaking of the blood and the body of Christ, which is completely unbiblical. Jesus never dies over and over and over again. He died once. And even as Jesus himself tells us, even as Paul tells us, the Bible's clear. Communion, the bread, is a symbol. Symbol. The cup is a symbol. But anyway, we're getting a little bit off track. John Wycliffe was concerned 
that people did not have the ability to read for themselves the Bible. And you know, most of the people that were leading the church, they really felt that people were kind of ignorant and couldn't handle it if they could read it. You met people like that. They have the answers. They know the answers. They think that if you somehow had the answers, you just couldn't handle it. You're too dumb. You're just too stupid. The attitude of the church at the time, the attitude of the leadership of the church was that these, these common folk, they just can't handle it. Can't handle it. Besides, they were better off kept in the dark. John Wycliffe wanted everyone to understand the truth from the Word of God and have it. Here's a little bit of a historian, uh, Garver, who writes about this in the late 1300s. He says, A vast papal bureaucracy system was moved from Rome to Avignon in France, making bishops civil servants and ministers of state. The landed wealth of the clergy estimated about one-third of the nation's total was not only tax-exempt, but immune to any legal action for its often cruel, if not criminal, treatment of the poor tenants of the land they owned. Sunday and Holy Day masses drew large crowds while the priests and the friars hawked their relics and indulgences as they mingled with the multitudes in the streets, having no higher motive than to increase the wealth of their already rich monasteries, selling indulgences, selling salvation, selling, selling stuff. Wycliffe, who, by the way, was an Oxford-educated priest, he was the first in a long line, long, long line of people who protested these practices. Protested these practices. And from his study, he used to write pamphlet after pamphlet after pamphlet about all the things that the church was teaching that were wrong and horrible and untrue. I mean, his commitment is seen in 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17, this portion that's in your notes. It says, since childhood, talking about Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures that are able to make you wise enough to have faith in Christ Jesus and be saved. Everything in Scripture is God's Word. All of it is useful for teaching and helping people and for correcting them and showing them how to live. The Scriptures train God's servants to do all kinds of good deeds, but if you can't understand it, how can you do it? And Wycliffe was serious about the need to communicate truth so people could understand it. He was exposing the hypocrites. He was constantly coming against their teachings. In fact, he says this. He says they run fast, talking about the priests and the religious leaders of the day. They run fast over land and sea in great peril of body and soul to secure rich benefits. But they will not go a mile to preach the gospel, though men are running to hell for lack of the knowledge of God. So they crossed the oceans and they invade territories and they did all kinds of stuff in order to build the kingdom. But it wasn't God's kingdom. It was their kingdom. You know, his, his perspective as he saw it and read the scriptures, 
His perspective was that the job and responsibility of the priest was to communicate God's word, to teach God's word in a way that people could understand it. However, were there not only no priests adequately fulfilling that high calling, they were all falling short. To make matters worse, there was no Bible that was written in the language of the day. It was written in Latin. And nobody at this point in time was reading, speaking Latin, except a very few. So Wycliffe exclaimed, he said, would that every parish church, every local church, had a good Bible and good expositors on the gospel, and that priests studied them, and truly taught the gospel and his commandments to the people. Then should good life prevail, and rest and peace and charity, sin and falseness would be put back. God bring this end to his people. You know, Wycliffe was so concerned about all of this that he became identified as a heretic. He became identified as a, as a person that was not to be trusted, not to be believed. He was unable to speak in many places because of his writings and so on. <laughs> but you know, after years of labor and years of work, Wycliffe and those who were part of his his followers who were set out to translate the Latin, they translated it into English. And all the Bibles that we have today are virtually cousins of the first English translation completed in 1382. Something you may not have known which bears some pretty powerful truth, is that almost 500 years after this was completed, there was a president named Abraham Lincoln who when he spoke at the Gettysburg Address, he spoke of a new birth of freedom. And in his very short, powerful address, you remember Abraham Lincoln said, that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. Do you know where he got that? He got that from the fly leaf of the translation of Wycliffe. In the fly leaf of the translation, it says this, this Bible is translated and shall make possible government of people by people for people. However, there was no freedom for John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe, because of his stand against the church, was forbidden to preach, stripped of his position as professor at Oxford, and upon his death in 1384... John Wycliffe was called an instrument of the devil, author of schism and a sower of hatred and a coiner of lies. They suppressed his writings and in 1413 they ordered all of his books burned. 
and at the, at the Council of Constance. This is what they said concerning John Wycliffe. They declared John Wycliffe to have been a notorious heretic and excommunicate him and condemning him and his memory as one who died an obstinate heretic. So what did they do with John Wycliffe? After they made this decision, they ordered his body to be exhumed. They burned his body and they threw his body into the river. But for all of their attempts to silence Wycliffe, all of their attempts to somehow shut him down and stop this movement, the scriptures were in the hands of people. And the truth of the word of God, as Jesus said, will set you free. And so along came another man. The second person we want to look at here today by the name of John Huss. John Huss, where John Wycliffe was primarily focused on the fact and disturbed by so many things, but his primary passion was people need the Word of God. People need the Word of God. John Huss, who became, as he was noted by all of the religious leaders, as a Wycliffeite. That was a nasty thing to say about somebody. You Wycliffeite. <laughs> anyway, John Huss became not only a Wycliffeite, but John Huss, who had been ignited by Wycliffe's passion, John Huss burned with a desire to expose the charlatans. And one of the primary things that he said and wrote a lot about, a lot about, was that there was only one vicar of the church and that was Jesus Christ. No human being can take the place of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, the popes didn't like that. And the whole system didn't like that. He was rocking the whole system. Basically, he was telling people in writing and his passion was that anybody who knows God can go directly to God. You don't need another man. You don't need another human being. You don't need anybody. You can go right into the presence of God. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are the chosen race, the king's priests. The king's priests. The holy nation, God's own people, chosen to proclaim the wonderful acts of God who called you out of darkness into his own marvelous light. And then Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says, We have a great high priest talking about Jesus. He has gone up into heaven. He is Jesus, the Son of God. We have a high priest who can feel it when we are weak and hurting. We have a high priest who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, but he did not sin. So let us boldly approach God's throne of grace. Then we will receive mercy. We will find grace to help when we need it. John Huss believed he didn't need another human being to get to God. Again, amongst other things. But this was the primary pushing of his heart. And when he would preach at his, at his church there in Bethlehem Chapel at, at uh, the city of Prague, it was just crowded with people who were constantly riveted at hearing him as he was speaking and preaching and so on. 
And often he would be confronted by the representatives of the Pope. They would come to him and they would try to stop him from doing what he was doing. They would try to silence him from his, from his speaking and from his writings. And uh, in fact, they would, they would come to him and they would declare to him that he needed to stop. And he would respond this way. He said, let it be understood that I call apostolic orders the teachings of the apostles of Christ. When the Pope's orders are in agreement with these, I am ready to listen to them. When they are contrary, I refuse to obey them, even if you were to kindle before my very eyes the fire in which my body was to be burned. Well, John Huss was also excommunicated. John Huss was not only excommunicated, but unfortunately his own statements became prophetic. He was called to appear before the Council of Constance. He was accused of, a, of Wycliffeism, as I said. When he refused to recant on the basis of no one being able to show him from the scriptures where his teachings were wrong. He said, show me where I'm wrong, I'll recant. They couldn't show him, he would not recant. His enemies sentenced him, sentenced him to be burned at the stake. And John Huss on July 6, 1415, with three trumpeters riding black horses, led him through the crowded streets of his site of execution. He was lashed to the stake and smeared with pitch and oil. And according to a historian, before the ex executioner could lit the embers piled at his feet, John Huss cried out. He said the following. He said, today, today, you will roast a lean goose. <laughs> Do you know why he said that? Because his last name Huss means goose. And so he said, today you will roast a lean goose. But a hundred years from now you will hear a swan. Him, him you will leave unroasted. And no trap or net will catch him before you. What powerful prophetic words. As he died that day. And by the way, there's a host of others who were martyred because of their stand, because they protested against this kind of teaching. It wasn't too long after John Huss, about a century after that, that another, another one would come along. The one whose song we sang this morning. A mighty fortress is our God. Martin Luther. Martin Luther. He was waging his own private war. He was so, so hard-pressed to earn his salvation. He worked and he worked and he labored and he labored. Tried so hard to be the best monk he could ever be. In fact, he even said himself, and it's written down, he said, if ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, I would have gotten there. He was a pretty good monk. 
He was a great monk. According to the church's standards of righteousness, he was impeccable. Sounds like Paul. Yet his conscience troubled him to despair. How could a sinful man like him stand under the scrutiny of a holy and exacting God? He wrestled primarily and very, very strongly with Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 that's in your notes. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for the salvation of everyone who believes, of the Jew first and of the Greek as well. And then he says, it says this, for in the gospel of God's righteousness is being revealed from faith to faith that is, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He, he just could not. He could not bring those two together. He thought that he had to be perfect. And every thought and every anguish that he had, everything he struggled with, led him to the place where he was battling and, and fighting and trying and striving. And finally, finally, in this one phrase at the end of verse 17, all of the light began to flood into his soul. The righteous shall live by faith. He realized for the first time that salvation was not the result of works. Righteousness wasn't something you could earn. Righteousness came by faith in Jesus Christ. Let me read to you three different things from Luther's own historian and so on. First of all, his mind, he pondered day and night over the meaning of the righteousness of God, Romans 1.17, and thought that it, that it is the righteous punishment of sinners. But toward the close of his covenant life, he came to the conclusion that it is the righteousness which God freely gives in Christ to those who believe in him. Righteousness is not to be acquired by man through his own exertions and merits. It is it is complete and perfect in Christ. And all the sinner has to do is to accept it from him as a free gift. As a free gift. Righteousness is not something you can earn. No one can earn righteousness. No matter how good you are, you and I are never going to be good enough. There's only one person that was sinless and that is our Lord Jesus. And he sacrificed his life so that we, by his sacrifice, could have entry into heaven and a relationship with God. As Luther studied Romans chapter 3 and 4, uh, there was some additional truth that leaped off the pages. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God had been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift uh, by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now to the one who works, His wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Righteousness. Martin Luther, he fought the same things that Wycliffe and Huss fought as well. But his primary concern was, 
you can't buy your way in, you can't work your way in, you can't good your way in. You can only Jesus your way in. Righteousness is only by faith in Christ. Justification is that judicial act of God whereby he acquits the sinner of guilt and clothes the sinner with the righteousness of Christ on the sole condition of faith. 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 I'm telling you, these three men, they remind us today of the sacrifices that they endured and many others as well so that you and I could understand three critical things. They protested. They sacrificed so we could be free. And there's three things as we look at their lives and respond to these men. Number one, trust God's word. Trust God's word. Psalm 78.1, listen to my instructions. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Psalm 119.105, that many learn when they're young. Your word is like a lamp that shows me the way. It is like a light that guides me. Hebrews 4.12, God's word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword and cuts as deep as the place where the soul and the spirit meet and the place where the joints and marrow meet. God's word judges a person's thoughts and intentions. Trust God's word. Make the word of God the first place you go to find out what to do, how to respond, how to live. Go to the word of God. God's word, as Jesus said in John chapter 8, the truth will set you free. The word of God will set you free. It is God's word that is powerful. All scriptures but given by inspiration of God. And then you'll be like, you'll be like uh, you know, Jeremiah who said, I, I found your words and I ate them and they were to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. You, you will never be disappointed when you go to the word of God and think of it, think of it. They didn't have the word of God. They didn't. They weren't able to just pick it up and read it. They couldn't listen to it on CD. They couldn't listen to it on the radio. You and I right now today have more resources than anybody has ever had in all time. There's no excuse for us not to connect ourselves with the truth, with the Word of God. And yet how many of us have Bibles that we can read and understand in our own language sitting on the shelves in our homes? And we don't pick it up not even once a day. And I want to say this in, in love and, and also with a, with a sense of urgency. Men, it's time to stand up. I'm looking at every one of you men in here and I'm saying, this church and this country is going down the tubes because you're not going to the Word of God. It's time for you to step up. Don't put it off on anybody else. Pick it up and just start reading it. The Word of God. Secondly, walk with God. I mean, if we have the avenue to go boldly into his presence, if you and I can walk and hang out with God, don't you think we ought to? I'm right there with Wycliffe. I'm right there with Huss. You don't need another human being. But it's up to us 
to walk into his presence. It's up to us. So again, this is true for all of us, but I've got to speak to you men once again. When was the last time you talked to God? Besides asking for help or a paycheck or some kind of a rainy day fund or some help with a flat tire or whatever it might be, when was the last time you talked to him? Come on, guys, step up. This is not your wife's problem. In fact, your home, this church and this country, designed by God to be led, not dominated. I'm not talking about becoming, you know, dictators or any of that kind of stuff, but it's designed by God to be led by men who are humble and submissive to God, walking with God, listening to God. So men, let's do it. Let's do it. And number three, number three, live by faith. Live by faith. It is such a critical thing. He says, everyone born of God is victorious and overcomes the world. Amen. And this is the victory that has conquered and overcome the world. Our continuing persistent faith in Jesus, the Son of God. Live by faith. Live by faith. I don't know about you, but the life of John Wycliffe, John Huss, and Martin Luther, they, they challenge me. They challenge me. They speak to my heart today. And they, they challenge me to go more often to the Word than to the Internet. To go to the Word more than to just find out what my coworkers think. You know, advice is good. But there's no greater advice than what's right here in this Word. God's Word. There's no greater privilege than to hang out with God. Hang out with God. And there's no greater joy and victory than to walk in confident faith that He is who He says He is and He will do what He says He'll do. That's where we need to be. That's where we need to be. In fact, that's so much where we need to be that we're going to start a series next Sunday called Remaining Three. Paul says there are three things that remain. Faith, hope, and love. And so in June, we're going to be focusing on faith. July, hope, and August, love. And I got a challenge for all you men in here this morning. It's a real simple one. Man up and show up. That's it. Man up and show up. And watch what God will do. God will turn this summer, God will turn this summer into a reformation in your life and your home. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful and we're so blessed. Blessed by the truth and the reality of your word. Lord, thank you so much that your word is so precious and true, so revealing. Thank you, Father, for opening a way so that we could have a relationship with you, we could hang out with you. 
And thank you so much that salvation is by grace through faith plus nothing. And so, Lord, this morning as we close our time, I just pray that each one of us would embrace these, these truths, that, Lord, we'd say yes, that we'd step up, and we'd stop trying, and that we'd start walking by faith and believing. I just pray, Father, this morning, if anybody here has been trying to earn their way to heaven, help them, Lord, to realize this morning that it's just impossible. There is no one righteous, no, not one. The only way is through Jesus. So help them to come this morning, pray with somebody up front to receive Christ and put their trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Father, there's others of us this morning who need to rekindle our appreciation our commitment, our devotion, not just to our relationship with you by faith, but also to spend time with you and to find in your word all that we need. So, Lord, as we sing, as we close out this time this morning, on this wonderful, wonderful Memorial Day weekend, we remember those who've given their lives for our country. We remember the protesters who've given their lives so we could be free. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.